Please enter your access code followed by the pound or hash sign. I am Alex Kaufman, and you have dialed into PodSAM, an off-season project of me, the Wintry Mix podcast guy, and Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. This is the fourth installment of our six-episode batch derived from the highlights of Sam's Summit Series, which brought together industry leaders, aka the mentors, with a question-asking audience of 10 middle management up-and-comer types from resorts across the U.S. Topics include management skills, problem-solving techniques, finance, capital planning, and risk. Go listen to the earlier ones if you haven't done so yet. Because this was derived from actual conference calls, there's a bit of typical phone interference and such, but it's totally worth it. Episode 4 mentors you are about to hear from are Jody Churich, longtime Powder Corp and Woodward executive, and Chris Blomback, GM of Pat's Peak in New Hampshire. Jody started her ski industry career in 1998 as director of sales and marketing at Alpine Meadows and went on to be GM of Boreal and Soda Springs, as well as a 2012 Sammy Award winner, most recently serving on the executive team at Powder Corp. Chris Blomback started at Pat's Peak, New Hampshire in 1991 as the operations manager before being named general manager, a position he's held for the last 21 years. Prior to Pat's Peak, he was at Magic Mountain in Vermont as the snowmaking supervisor and base area operations manager. Throughout these episodes, you will also occasionally hear from Paul Tallner, founder of High Peaks Group, an organizational change consultancy. Paul serves as moderator on the series of calls, so let's get started. Paul? Jody and Chris, this uh, as mentees, as you know, this is a conversation we'll have today about project management, capital management, uh, two highly related and pieces of the of the puzzle, uh, and would love to hear your thoughts and experiences for the benefit of our, our mentees. So, for each of you, um, and Chris, since you're you're new, you're, you, this is your first call. I'd, I'd love to start with you. Maybe you could just uh, share a story of a moment. Um, early in your career when you learned an important lesson about uh, project management or capital management? Sure. Um, I'll back it up a little bit. Uh, when I was a, a wee young lass, I t- uh, took a, a wee, wee young lad, shall I say, I uh, took a political science course. And uh, one of the first things I had to do was fill out a, uh, fill out a form for the first day of school. And uh, they had to basically write down what your, most of your political beliefs were. And I wrote down that, uh, well, you know, I was a free market capitalist, uh, self-reliance, fiscal conservative, and uh, my family had a pretty strong military backing. And uh, the professor gathered up all the pieces of paper and uh, shuffled them around. And he came over to me and he said, Mr. Blomback, your charge is going to be defending communism, communal living, state control of the economy, and uh, all those other good things that are the exact opposite of what you believe in. (laughs) And what I can say is that was a a formative experience because uh, when it comes to capital planning and stuff, I think ski areas in general are 800-pound gorillas in their local towns, counties, and for that matter, even the state. I know that both uh, Vermont and New Hampshire have tough environmental regulations regulatory controls on a lot of their projects and um, 
what I can say is that that course taught me to anticipate the concerns of other people that may not have the exact same enthusiasm for a project. I've been, uh, I've been fortunate to work for a company that's pretty aggressive in capital spending uh, to remain competitive in the ski industry. And what I can say is that uh, when I first got one of my uh, first roles as a general manager, I didn't necessarily learn all those lessons right from that political science class. And I had a lot of enthusiasm for a particular project that uh, I probably got a little bit of poor advice from one of my uh, consultants that I was using. And uh, I ran headlong into a buzzsaw of opposition for a project that was um, to get more water for our snowmaking operation. You know, we were also advised by a state agency that we could do this, do a lot of these things without a permit. And uh, what it taught me to do is to step back, slow the process down, punch out a timeline, figure out the pros and cons of a certain project, who's going to be in favor of this project, who's going to be against this project, and try and address their concerns in advance of actually sticking a shovel in the ground or, or undertaking any sort of project. Because uh, those types of things where people can become your opposition or groups can become your opposition can really tie up a project and really uh, cause you to start spending a lot of money with, uh, with lawyers, legal fees, additional consultants and studies and stuff like that. So that was a project that I kind of cut my teeth on the secondary project where we did a large expansion on our backside of our mountain was, uh, the culmination of bringing all those events together. So, uh, one thing we did is we held a couple of open houses, uh, well in advance of cutting even a single branch or a tree. And we invited the local community to come into our ski area. We had some nice glossy maps on the, on the, on the wall and we basically said hey folks you know we understand that we're a, a big entity shoehorned in here in in amongst the residential area and we want to be a good neighbor and uh, we learned our lesson from the first project does anybody have any concerns or issues or you know our engineers are here to listen to understand community thought process i have to say that the second part of that project went off incredibly smooth i had many people who are former opponents actually come up to me and say thank you very much for being inclusive uh thank you very much for uh listening to the, the larger community and um uh, the project faced no hurdles whereas the first project it was kind of like trying to run a marathon in wet concrete it was uh it was expensive it was a lesson well learned I only say that because, you know, we don't necessarily embark on the same type of projects that uh, Jody would do. She, I think she has a lot more resources at her disposal, but it was for a small independent family ski area. Um, it was, it was a lesson that I thought was pretty prudent to bring to the table to, to make sure you do your homework, figure out what other people are going to think about your project and try and anticipate uh, some of their concerns going forward so that you don't look like a deer in the headlights when the issue does come up. Thanks a lot, Chris. That's, that's, uh, that's great. Um, Jody, can you share a story of uh, a time when, 
early in your career when you learned a lesson about project management or capital? I, I can. I, I find, Chris, your story amazing because I literally today, so I can start with the current state. <laughs> uh, today we're going in front of an appeal um, county council for Woodward Park City, and I, I can certainly attest to Chris um, great advice that um, look at future planning as a long haul with um, a, a lens against really doing a lot of research and homework heading into it, which um, with Woodward Park City, we, we did do. We have spent the last 16 months um, working through work sessions with the county commission, planning commission, holding homeowner association, open houses, um, public is invited into the work sessions to learn about our project. And I believe that preparation and pre-planning is crucial. However, the bureaucracy that happens in local land development is that there's a lot of neighbors and, and stipulations that, that come out towards the end of a process. And, and so we're, we're facing the same thing, Chris. Um, it gets expensive, legal is involved, and really persevering um, becomes challenging. What I can say is that, um, you know, land development is, is part of growing your business and, and just taking a lens with knowing it's a long process and pre-planning is, is crucial. I can tell you um, a few lessons that I've learned back in my career. Um, one of the key capital projects that I had early in my career out of the gate was we identified at one of our smaller resorts, we were missing a whole demographic of our customer base. Um, really, snow play and tubing was a cornerstone of the small resort operation. And, and I noticed one day that young children didn't have lift tickets on and were just kind of digging in the snow. And I went to our management team and said, you know, we have these, these customers that we aren't serving and a full-fledged experience for what can we do. And so we really took a look at um, what could drive our needle and, and strengthen that, the growth of that business. And so we, we developed a low barrier to entry customer facing product. And so through the development of a master plan um, and, and an investment, we turned the entire resort contribution, net operating income, we found a whole new division of revenue growth and a whole new customer base at the same time. So I think that if you can find a significant brand driver, a differentiator for your business, uh, you can find some asset, light asset costing products um, to really create some value for your company. And that, that just is one example I have of many, but I'll start with that one, Paul and Chris. Those are really great. As I, as I listen to both of your stories, um, I'm, I'm reminded of, the, uh, of some of the challenges, you know, even getting set up, uh, getting projects set up, whether they're large or small. Um, those the challenge to, you know, first understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve. You know, Jody, in your case, you know, how do we, you know, give um, give customers the kind of experience. You know, all the customers who show up, the kind of experience that enables them to, uh, you know, have a good time and come back. 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, with the, you know, the capital project, you know, the, you know, uh, providing water for the snowmaking equipment or other big projects that, that happen, you know, all of the homework that has to happen beforehand to get people on board. How do you break down the problem into manageable pieces so that you're not stuck at, uh, you know, because some people get paralyzed by the big question or the big challenge, but how do you break it down in a way that enables you and your team to move forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I can take a quick stab at it. Um, we think about it in two, two very different buckets, if you will. You have your maintenance and your priorities against your franchise spend or your maintenance, the things that really hold your business up. And then our second bucket is really surrounding growth and how can we create growth or needle movers, if you will, for the company that have areas of high leverage uh, for growth. And so we, we bucket it. That's how we define our priorities in those two realms. I'll take Jody's comments a little bit further. Uh, we, I agree that you've got priorities and you've also got the maintenance. One of the things that's been uh, – impressed upon me by the ownership is uh, the experience. There's a lot of capital projects at a ski area that really kind of, and I know that some people may disagree with this, but it's been, been my experience that um, to put a return on investment is a little bit difficult to, to conventionally work that out on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet, so to speak. Um, our owner is a big, uh, big advocate that you are buying an experience. You're not buying a commodity. And there are a lot of things that we do at our little ski area um, that I really could not prepare a return on investment on. And it's more for market retention and experience. And uh, I'll just do a, a quick example of that. You know, we built this uh, new plaza area that was an entryway into our facility. It was north of Three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand dollars. By the time this thing was done, it was a beautiful post and beam clock tower, plaza entrance, new granite steps, and all that good stuff. When we started this project, I knew that the the entranceway was a little bit ratty. But when the ownership looked at me and they said, um, "You know, what do you think?" and I said, "You know what? I can't even sit here with a straight face and tell you if there's any sort of return on this investment or not." But it feels good. It feels like it's the right thing to do. And, um, you know, it turned out that that was one of the better things that we did because the, the, the feedback that we got was it was incredible that, uh, uh, you know, people were really loving the new look, the new entry. Does that translate into ticket sales? I really couldn't, I couldn't answer that. That's really interesting. Um, you know, with any of these kinds of large-scale uh, undertakings. I'm kind of curious to know of if you've, you know, how you deal with trade-offs. You know, the kinds of uh, the kinds of decisions you have to make where the the end result may not end up being quite how you imagined, uh, or the pathway might not be exactly as straight as you would have hoped. So I'm kind of curious to know how you, you know, if you've encountered trade-offs, which I'm guessing you have. And uh, what your thinking is when you have to, you know, give up a little to get a lot later? Yeah, I mean, I can I can jump in. I mean, trade-offs are huge, right? Because you can, and I kind of will go back to strategy. If you can identify your key consumer needs and wants, um, it becomes really clear where you can 
put your capital against uh, a strategy, um, it becomes clear when you can say, hey, my competitors are excelling in this part of the experience. Do Can I double down and, and create growth or value for my company if I double down in that area? Or is that an area where I should just not be in an arms race for? Um, and I think it goes back to your strategy. If you can determine what is best for your consumer, then you can build your strategy around it and those trade-offs then start to fall off. You can decide, hey, I'm going to put in bubble, you know, six packs or our company may be better positioned to excel in experience. Um, you just have to know where those trade-offs are and it's, it's worth the time building out the right definition of the key attributes for your company pegged against what maybe others in your marketplace are doing so that you're not trying to just always keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, it's, it's always a tough little arms race around here in New England, and I'm sure it's the same way in uh, Utah and California where Jody operates her resorts. But we, uh, you know, we're, we're always, it's a very capital-intensive business, and um, the trade-offs are significant in terms of what you're trying to accomplish it's not an exact science all the time. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to PodSAM and Summit Series partner, Mountain Guard. Mountain Guard has been serving the ski industry since 1962, providing resort special coverages, education, claims handling, and risk management expertise. Learn more at mountainguard.com. So I guess I'm kind of curious to know from your perspective, watching other other people lead projects, um, what do you typically notice about the role of of successful project leaders or project managers? What do you What are some of the characteristics you notice in folks who who really hit the ball out of the park? Yeah, I mean, I can I can jump in because we just came off a, a really significant project with a with a licensed partner um, for Woodward. Um, we just built Woodward Riviera Maya, and even though it, it's a, a step away from the ski industry, it, it all falls into the same type of scenario. But when you're working with, especially a second party, um, not your home crew the role of the project manager is extremely critical. And I think that, and I had the same experience when we built Woodward Tahoe at Boreal. Um, you have to have a bridge between your general contractor and your, your operating team. Um, because what you can find is that your team has their day job. And then when you add a big capital project onto it, it can be like a second job for them. Um, and, where I think we've fallen prey to is spreading our teams fairly thin. Um, so I think it's just really, really crucial to have a project manager for each project and having a really regimented uh, financial budget timeline um, and scope of work so that all parties are communicating against the same exact plan because what, what tends to happen is with every major big capital project, there are curveballs. When I look for successful people, I mean organizational skills and attention to detail are the things that roll right up to the top when I'm looking for a key project manager. Definitely echo what Jody just said. Sometimes we can spread ourselves a little bit too thin, but I think that's just a, a natural byproduct of the industry where it's boom and bust. 
um, you know, your, your staffs get pulled real thin in the fall and, and they retract a little bit in the summer to catch their breath. As a, as a general manager, I'm always looking internally to the organization for problem solvers. Uh, I, I think most general managers are, or uh, CEOs are acutely aware of all the issues that are plaguing the company. We're looking for problem solvers. And uh, sometimes I think there's a sign on my desk that says, dump your garbage here. And I try and stop people when they do that and um, say that, you know, what have you got constructively to bring forward? Because, you know, I'm aware that the, X part of our facility may be a little bit short. And what, what I'm always looking for are the folks that come into my office, they say they've got an issue and they've got solutions as well. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about some of those solutions and gradually that person will start earning credits with me, if you will. And usually it'll start out as a small project, work its way up to a medium project. And the biggest thing that I care about when I'm looking for, project managers to to lead a, a capital expansion or anything like that is basically owning it and showing up. When I'm talking about owning it, it's they're taking all aspects of the operation into consideration. And if they make a mistake, it's going to happen because you're going to have a, you know, you've got human beings involved in your organization. I don't want them shirking from the responsibility. I want them to own it, taking full control of the project, making sure that you own all aspects of it. If parts of the project go awry, you're not blaming other people. You just sit there and you, you, you take the heat. Um, I, can, I can assure you you'll get far less heat from me as a general manager if you step up and own it versus if I find out that um, you tried to cover something up or hide something. So just step forward, own it, and uh, that's what we're looking for in project leaders. Like, what do you look for in early career folks that that give you the sign that this person may be kind of um, uh, ascending and 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 sort of in the pipeline to be ready for some more significant challenges? Yeah, I would say some of the key areas around that is how do they manage uh, budgets, how well they are at communicating, are they capable of working with multiple. Um, entities at a time. I think all of those things are really crucial. If you have someone that's more of a big visionary that is less detail oriented, probably wouldn't roll to the top for me as it relates to a project manager. It's someone that can really see the big picture and boil it down into steps and process. I think process is huge in project management. Um, do you typically hire for that or do you develop that internally for folks? You know, I think that's a really good question. I think leadership development in general varies from business to business. In general, it comes from people being in on the operations side is where we've typically seen project management um, person come from. And so, as far as having a disciplined program around it, I would say it's it's more training in the field. However, I do think that's a really important area to focus on as far as leadership training goes. Chris, what do you how are you what do you think? Well, I think uh, we you know we like to hire on attitude before anything, and uh, you know if you break down a project, you, I would say nine times out of ten. Uh, the root cause of a project going awry is communication or miscommunication. 
Mm. Uh, So we look for project leaders that have a a mastery of communication and uh, the directors that sit at our senior team level, they do a very good job of that. It's very important to communicate your thought process to, especially when you're working with other departments, because the communication is the lubrication that makes everything work well. If you're a poor communicator or you make a lot of assumptions, uh, that can get you into the weeds pretty quick. To dovetail that in with a little bit of what we do at at our ski area, you know, a number of years ago, uh, I think most ski areas kind of do the same thing. And I'll echo Jody's comments once again that we're we're looking at our operations staff. And, uh, you know, let's face it, the ski business is, it's a seasonal business. Uh, The entry-level jobs don't pay a a tremendous amount of money. There's an incredible amount of turnover. So when you get a candidate that comes back year two, year three, that person is in general, getting ready to, you know, they're showing a commitment to your organization and you're, you're kind of doing an assessment on them as to whether or not they can be a, a supervisor or a manager. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we had sort of a, 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 an eye awakening, a moment or awakening moment a few years back or more than a few years back, um, we were, we were setting these people up for failure when we were promoting them mm-hmm. and we were not giving them the tools so, you know, it, it's very difficult if you're working, let's say, in lodge maintenance and you're working with your, uh, your, your fellow employees to now all of a sudden the next year or in a month's time, you're now their supervisor and you haven't given them the schooling or the tooling to, to learn how to interact with people. And, again, it goes back to communication. How do you speak to employees? How do you, how do you frame mm-hmm. issues that you want to kind of deal with? You know, so we kind of set up an HR boot camp. Uh, that we do every fall. We bring in uh, Laura Moriarty from Tahoe Training Partners. She does a three-day workshop with our staff. And uh, the feedback that we've gotten is incredible from our staff members that uh, they've gotten a lot of help out of it, how to deal with difficult situations, how to Mm -hmm. communicate effectively uh, when they're encountering a difficult situation. Um, You know, even to this day, as as many years as I've been doing the job, I still get presented with a situation that I got to step back and say, all right, I got a, I got a difficult conversation coming up. How do I handle this? And sometimes I got to take, you know, I have to sleep on it overnight, how I want to handle it. That's, you know, that's where we're at. So, uh, you know, Chris, you mentioned communication. Uh, You know, are there, are there some best practices or other things that you've noticed that distinguish good project managers from great ones, uh, you know, the type of communication, frequency, style, you know, you know, I certainly not being afraid to communicate is one thing, but what about um, other best practices around communication that you've noticed? Well, I'm a big advocate of email, and uh, I, I ask a lot of our directors at our company to, you know, at the end of the day, if they're specifically dealing with uh, other departments that, you know, give them a, give them a five minute recap at the end of the day, take, take, take some time, decompress and say, all right, I need this. I need that. Um, but what I would also say is along that line of communication, you're, you're documenting everything so that if there are issues, you can, you can reference that, but I will stress this beyond is the most important aspect. I think anyway, as soon as you detect the slightest bit of hiccup in the process, you need to stop the email and you need to contact the person that you may be having an issue with and, and just physically face to face work out your issues because 
I see it on social media, I see it on emails, and I see it in text. They're not getting the full body language of a conversation. They're not understanding exactly what you're saying. And you're gonna. My advice is to stop with the emails in that regard. And tr if you have a difficult situation, to confront the person face to face and try and work out the differences, because otherwise, it'll take on a life of its own. We, I think many of us have been burned by email, uh, sort of not being able to <laughs> pick up the subtle nuances uh, in those things. But email is great for informing or or uh, scheduling for, for in a lot of ways. But there's not, nothing beats a face-to-face -face conversation to really get a lot done quickly. Jody, how about for you? Are there any uh, – what best practices either around communication or just sort of the project architecture uh, would you would you have you noticed or would you share with the, the mentees? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what Chris stated around communication and the sort of EQ side of the of the project manager is super critical. Having that right temperament is is really a, an important quality to look for in, in your people. I would say as far as best practices, um, really setting the roadmap at the beginning of the project, the focus and alignment among all the key stakeholders is really crucial. Um, and so how I look at each project is what's the short-term, mid-term, and long-term planning goal. Um, it sounds very process-oriented, but you have to set your milestones, right, and your key priorities. But I think after you set those key priorities is the check-in points and pain points and, and making sure that you're overcoming them and not ignoring them. And then, and then it just becomes executional and tactical at that point, really just activating against the plan. I will put in asterisks because all plans, there are things that come up that you can't always plan for, which is when value engineering and things like that start to take effect. And as long as you start with your project with clear focus and alignment, you can overcome those asterisks or things that come up and mitigate them pretty quickly if you're all starting on the same page. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to supporting partner Access. Today's skier and rider is tech savvy. They've got easy pass. Hell, their dog has an RFID chip in them. Make sure you are delivering the frictionless and cashless convenience your customers expect, along with mobile-friendly skier tracking via Access RFID ticketing and access control. More info at teamaccess.com. That's teamaxess.com. Uh, how do you how do you close out a project uh, effectively and end it so that people know it's over and they're on to the next thing? You know, obviously, you wrap your marketing around it and you you set your project out in motion, um, and then we have check-in points. You know, as far as how is it moving the needle. Um, are we seeing growth in the areas that we had planned to? There's certainly metrics around it that we do revisit. You know, is the snowmaking project eliminating some of our adversity as it relates to climate change? Or did the capital project for a summer um, activation, have we seen growth in those areas? So we definitely circle back and, and see how the strategy is working and do we need to turn the dials and modify? There's a lot of variables that go into, you know, measuring the performance of a project once it's complete. 
Uh, it's never an easy task in this industry, especially with the variability of weather, uh, you know, timing of storms and, and just in general. Usually, once a project is complete, uh, we'll have a decompress and figure out what worked, what didn't work, and uh, we try and learn from that experience going forward. And, and uh, we'll do a little Monday morning quarterbacking after the ski season and kind of say, well, how'd that work out for us? We're getting a couple of questions in from our mentee. Thank you both for the, the questions. I'll read them out and uh, forgive me if I don't don't capture the context well enough, but let me just read it verbatim uh, as I've gotten it. So uh, Jody and Chris, this is from Brandon. For a department that cannot effectively drive revenue because it is operations-based, it can be hard to have capital projects receive funding because usually there's no R no ROI and it mostly revolves around employee experience, employee experience or guest experience at a lift station. In a large company where it's all about the numbers, how do I get these projects to be more in the limelight? That's a great question, Brandon. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think, you know, it goes back to what Chris said. Um, if a main strategy of your company is guest experience, then it just needs to be um, presented in such a way that articulates how the guest experience will be improved. Um, and so I think it's really showing your strategy around why would this be a game changer for our company? What's the, what are the levers that we can pull? Can we market that we're, you know, improving our service in a certain way? I mean, if you just come with, hey, I have an idea for a new lift maze, it may not have the strength the strength to be funded, but if you have a, a strategy around it where it's it's a key attribute to your consumer experience, then I think um, for me, I would welcome those types of proposals. Yeah, every uh, every spring, our directors uh, get together and and they know it's kind of like clockwork. So they, I'm I'm hopeful that they're looking internally to their staff for ideas. But any once April and May roll around at the ski area, any director at our company, and there's eight of us, are allowed to bring forward any project for a mm. capital review. And, uh, you know, we say, the sky's the limit. I mean, ask for anything. And then what you've got to do is, in that director team, you've got to be able to justify and explain why your project takes precedence over another project. So for instance, uh, you know, around April, mid-April, we'll probably have two and a half to $3 million worth of projects that uh, get proposed. And depending on the ski season, uh, we'll reverse engineer that. And, you know, after we, we balance out cash flow for the, for the upcoming spring, summer, and fall, we'll say, okay, you know, we feel pretty comfortable that ownership is going to give us a million dollars you've got two and a half million dollars worth of projects. And then you literally go around to each director and they have to justify why their project should receive funding. And, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily look at it from an operations basis or if it's uh, if it's the rental shop or if it's uh, new ski school uniforms or, or whatever, every project is, is equally weighed and debated. And, you know, sometimes the directors, after they're hearing the overall concerns of the company, there's a little bit of horse trading that goes on and, and they'll say, you know, we think maybe this project uh, uh, can wait a few years and, and we, and we whittle that number down to, 
to a, a reasonable amount that we can bring to ownership and, and get their holy water thrown on it. Um, but it's, it's it, you know, it's a difficult process. It's a, it's a capital-intensive business. You throw the variability of weather into it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's the nature of our industry that probably capital budgets are the first thing that gets cut when you start having ski seasons like we're having here in the East Coast. As, as much as the West is struggling with, with snow, the East is struggling with extreme cold for the Christmas break as well mm. as uh, poorly timed weather events. So, you know, mm-hmm. my, magic, my magic wish list of $3 million of capital spending is, is, is quickly dwindling because you know, I've got my burdens that I've got to pay, which is, you know, weekly payroll, health insurance, property taxes, all the non-glamorous stuff that, uh, that makes the, the business tick. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's not uncommon for a capital project to sit on our, uh, our sheet for a couple, three years before it actually gets funding. And sometimes they, they fall away if something better comes along. But I would just say squeaky wheel gets the grease. If you're really, truly passionate about it, do your homework as to why you think this project should be funded and i think eventually you'll you you may be surprised that uh it it may get funded it it probably to echo jody's comments it probably won't be right away but Mm. they're they're listening we're watching that's great that's awesome well this this is a really good segue to another question that came in from this one's from nate um and he asks uh, or uh, when it comes to capital projects, what tactics do you use to keep projects staying within the larger resort plans and avoid projects that enhance things but don't mesh with the overall development plans? Yeah, I think Nate brings up a, a very good point about how do you stay focused. And I'll, I'll circle back to what we do with our directors in the spring is that there's a, there's some pretty strong egos at that table. And <laughs> That's a, that's a good thing and a bad thing at points. And uh, sometimes uh, it'll circle back and it'll be hauled back in if it doesn't pass the sniff test, if you will, as to whether or not it's a core mission statement for what we are as a company. You know, for instance, there's a, we've had some projects proposed over the years that they'll, they'll collapse under their own weight if they don't really advance what we're trying to do as an organization. Uh, oh, another question. Sorry, it just popped in. A great question from also from Nate. Uh, where does capital funding come from? Where do you typically get it? Obviously, it doesn't uh, show up out of the ether, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Every company is different how they fund capital projects, whether they go out and leverage it, take out you know lines of credit, or ferment it in-house um, through your profitability. Um, how you create your own capital funding depends on wh- how big your company is or, or, or not. But generally, um, your, your working capital is coming from either money you're borrowing or money that you're creating um, on your own from your operations and your profitability. Uh, so I wanted to ask, uh, just you know, as we're in our waning moments here, to maybe think a little bit about a time in your past when you were a little bit newer, a little greener uh, in your careers, and just kind of like one moment that was not luck, <laughs> but uh, that that really helped you and gave you a lesson that that you that you think it's worth imparting back to our our mentees. 
in, in the instances that I brought up today, Planet Kids at Soda Springs was not an obvious capital expense. It was created out of a vision. Um, and I think those are some of the kind of critical moments is when you're willing to bet and double down on an opportunity uh, that you've, you and your team have created um, out of really looking at your, the dynamics in your market. That's great. Chris? Yeah, I would say uh, slow the process down a little bit. Um, mm. I know that when I was a younger manager, uh, it was kind of like a, a Chinese fire drill when I first got my job as general manager. And a lot like others have been promoted in this business. There was no textbook. I didn't really have a strong mentor above me as to how to become a general manager. Um, I remember the owner threw me the keys and he said, uh, you know, I was an old lift mechanic from way back. He said, good luck fixing people. My goodness. So it was definitely an eye opener and slowing the process down. It took me a long time. It took me a few years to, to gain the confidence that this industry is nothing but curveballs. You know, if, whether it's project management, whether it's HR, whether it's, it's cash flow, it's always something coming at you, and you you got to learn to not take things personally, and mm. you've got to be able to step back from the fire and get a broad view of any particular situation, whether you're just being a, in management or you're doing project management or capital planning. Step back, slow the process down a little bit, look at all aspects of how this project could go, have the confidence. You know, somebody, somebody has seen something in you folks, because your mentor mentees here on this phone call. So somebody has seen something in you guys that they want to nourish and they want to make sure that it flourishes. So somebody's got confidence in you as a, as a manager. I hope that you guys have confidence in yourself to understand where the company's trying to go and to take it all in. Since you have successfully arrived at the conclusion of episode four, then you, my friend, are a perfect candidate for my next request. Please rate and review PodSAM on Apple Podcasts. It helps other mountain-minded folks find the show. Also consider grabbing a coworker's phone and subscribing them. You'll make them smarter. Episode five will give us another round with Chris Blomback of Pat's Peak and welcome back John Rice of Sierra at Tahoe discussing risk management. For more information about SAM's Summit Series, visit the all-new saminfo.com or dig into a recent print edition of the magazine. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks again to Mountain Guard and Access RFID Ticketing for their support of PodSAM. Episode 5 will be out in July. Until then, I'm Alex Kaufman, and thanks for listening to PodSAM. <laughs>